Center. So in seventh grade, I get invited to go to a student council kind of summer camp. Anybody here in student council? We have any student council people? Future politicians? One. Awesome. Two. Good. All right. Does everybody know what student council is? Awesome. Okay. So I went to this summer camp and we learned about leadership, which meant we did like things where you blindfold yourself and have to get in order of your birthday and just random stuff like that. And then in the evenings, we had this our cabin, and our counselor would just kind of walk us through different things, and my cabin counselor happened to be a Christian. And so I had grown up kind of aware of church. We would go kind of on the major event holidays like Christmas Eve, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, and then throughout the rest of the year, we didn't really attend church at all. So I'd heard about Christianity and heard about God and kind of always thought that God was there and existed. But in seventh grade, I was faced with this reality or this situation where this cabin counselor started to talk to me about this place called hell. And he described a horrific picture. And so he said, in order to avoid that, you just have to ask Jesus in your heart. So I was like, well, I know I don't want what he just described. That sounds absolutely horrible. So I prayed to receive Jesus maybe six or seven times that night, making sure that I got the words in the correct order, emphasized the right thing. And I was like, I just don't want to mess this up because I don't want to go to that place. That sounds horrible. So then I kind of went on my merry way. I went along, didn't really have any awareness of like a relationship with Jesus or kind of that my life needed to change or anything. I just knew that if there's this afterlife thing called hell, I think I'm covered because I prayed that prayer, like I said, seven or eight different times in different ways. So then I continue living for me, pursuing the things that I wanted. And then in the summer after my sophomore year of high school, I go and I decided to go on this mission trip. I'd been invited to a youth group because I thought there was a pretty girl there. So I wanted to kind of hang out with her, ended up meeting the youth pastor and some other people that I became friends with. But I still wasn't following Jesus. And so I go on this, do I need to move this thing so it's not all... We good? All right. It keeps making... under. Okay, we're good. Uh, so I decided to go on this summer mission trip. I'll just put it down there. Good? All right. So I'm just going to plow through it, guys. You guys with me? Okay, it's making like little noises. All right, so I go on this summer mission trip, and in this summer mission trip, I encounter the living God. I, I meet Jesus in an incredible way, and I have never recovered from that encounter where I realized the God of the universe knew me by name. And that was a real big deal for me. And so from that point on, that changed the trajectory of my life. And I got into college, and I was, things were changing. My life was changing. My priorities were changing. The things that I was pursuing, uh, the way that I spent my time, the kind of friendships that I had, these things were all changing. And so I get into college, sophomore year, I meet this guy. He sits down to coffee with me, and he starts asking me my story. And he starts asking me why I think that Christianity is true against all other religions, because I was a philosophy major. And as he begins to challenge me, I talk to him about the reason why I know Christianity is true is because I've experienced this change, this dramatic change in my life. And he says, that's great. 
But then he asked this intense question and that at the time I did not know how to respond to. And he asked me, so you've experienced this dramatic change in your life, and that's great. Sounds like you're le- being a great moral person and, and choosing good things over bad things, treating people differently. You've got your life in order. That's, that's great. But how is that any different than somebody on our campus that used to do drugs, sleep around, kind of do things to people, steal things, whatever, that all of a sudden they started to get into Buddhism and meditation and they found order in their life and they started to, to make things, make these major changes and all of a sudden they've experienced a big change in their life. How do you differentiate the validity or the truth of Christianity and Buddhism if it's only about experiencing change in your life? And at that time I had no idea how to respond to that because I, I couldn't. I couldn't point to anything different. They're two completely different stories of reality, and yet they both result in change. So how do you, how do you defend that? How do you defend Christianity if it's only about changed life? Now, I'm not saying that change of life is somehow a bad thing or, or not true or invalid, because I think there is the reality that when you meet the living God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that you will change. That will affect you. But what is it that stands Christianity in contrast to all other religions and ideas? And that's where our first hard question comes from. One of the first hard questions has to deal with this very distinct component of Christianity. And that is, up on the screen, am I really supposed to believe Jesus came back to life? That's a hard question. That's a real question that I struggled with even as a believer because I was like, do I have to believe this kind of incredible stuff in the Bible, all these miracles, or can I just be a good moral person? Can I just kind of behave and imitate Jesus, treat people well, kind of have love, joy, peace in my heart, and not have to accept all that kind of supernatural stuff? Has anybody ever wondered that? Anybody here ever struggled with, what do you do with that stuff? That's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty major claim. And so what we're going to look at tonight is, do we have to, how do we answer that? And then if we answer it in the affirmative, how do we defend that? Is there reason to believe that that's the case? Okay? So, what we're going to do is, uh, we're going to, identify, first of all, why is there a tension? Why is that a hard thing to believe? That Jesus rose from the dead. Why is that hard to believe for people? That's not a common experience we have, is it? <laughs> kind of like human flight. It's not a... Anybody ever had the dream where you, you can jump really high and then all of a sudden you just take flight and you fly around in your dream? Oh, I'd love... That would be so sweet if that was real. But it's not. Right? We don't have that experience. And like, what's, uh, what's your name? Corby? So as Corby pointed out, the reason why there's tension here is because that's not a part of our experience. We don't experience people rising from the dead. We experience death and people dying. And the consistent reality for us is that they stay dead. 
That's, that's our experience. So there's a tension. And so some people say, well, you can either have faith or you can have reason. But you can't have both. Either faith is this blind acceptance of things regardless of experience. And you have this fluffy thing called faith. Or on this side you have reason and logic. And the two can't play together. And I would argue that's false. That's a false dichotomy. If you'll pull up this idea here, faith, as we understand it, is not a blind leap, but it's in fact a confidence or a trust in something we have strong reason to believe in. It's not blind, and it's not a leap, but it's a confidence and a trust in something. Reason is the idea of sound judgment or something that lines up with our senses. It's sensible. And it's something that makes sense. You understand what I'm saying there? And so, is there an expectation that in Christianity, faith and reason should somehow interact? There is. You see this in 1 Peter, where he says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope. What's your reason For the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. So the expectation that Peter, who's one of the early church leaders, he's writing to the church that's spread abroad, and he's encouraging them, be prepared. When people ask you why you have hope, why you have faith, be prepared to explain that. And so... We are expected to give a response. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you tonight to think that it shouldn't be based on, well, I've experienced changed life, because really faith should come before the changed life. It's your faith in Christ that produces the life change to follow. So it can't be the reason why it started. You can see change in other people's lives and go, whoa, what's going on with them? What's that all about? What do they have? What are, what are they doing different? Have you ever been around somebody who you knew before they were a Christian and then after they became a Christian, they were totally different? Anybody have that experience? And you're like, what happened to you? And then they start to explain, here's, here's what changed. But it's not the change of life that is the reason for the hope. It's the result of the hope. Okay, so here we have this answer to the question. Do we really have to believe Jesus rose from the dead? Another church leader, early church leader, is a guy named Paul. Now, Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible, if you were to split it in two. And he wrote a letter to one of these early churches in a town called Corinth. And in that town, there were all kinds of different things going on. They worshipped a bunch of different gods. And so these Christians were really struggling in a lot of ways, whether it was offering meat to false idols or kind of messing up in their relationships. And there were all kinds of issues they were facing. So Paul would write them letters to encourage them and to teach them. And one of the, the letters he has here, it's his first letter to them. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Resurrection is when something resurrects, it rises up. 
And so he's saying, how can you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What's vain mean? If something's in vain, what's that mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's worthless or it's really kind of empty, right? So he's saying, if, if you're going to say that the dead, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then your faith is empty. It's worthless. It's pointless. It, it doesn't have meaning. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why do you think you'd say that? So we're still dead. If Christ doesn't rise from the dead, we still have a major sin problem. We, have, we still standing before a holy God who is perfect. And we are very imperfect. And we have, we have no hope. And then he goes on to say we're people most to be pity. That means we're spending our time trying to live this good life and it's all for nothing. He go, later he'll go on to say, because if, if Christ didn't rise from the dead and this is all there is, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow it's over. And so we better, we better get to live in life and live into the fullest and having fun because this is as good as it's going to get. If, in fact, Christ didn't rise from the dead. So, to answer the question, do we really have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah. That's kind of a big deal. That's kind of this whole thing that he demonstrated that he was, in fact, God by rising from the dead. In Romans, another letter that Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, and he was declared, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That that sealed the deal. That demonstrated he is in fact the Messiah. The Savior. Okay. But it's still kind of like, yeah, that's a big claim though. How on earth can we have confidence or strong reason to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? So I'm going to go through five points that I think are very convincing. And for me, throughout my life, there have been seasons of doubt and high degree of confidence. And, I, and every time that I'm kind of going, man, is this whole thing real? Is this, this Christian thing that I'm doing and that I attend on Wednesday nights and on Sunday nights and I go on these trips and I give money to help buy Bibles for people in London and is all of this, is this all like a, a real thing? Or am I just going through the motions here? Whenever I wrestle in that way, the backstop where it, where it stops for me is the resurrection of Jesus because I just, there's nothing more convincing than that. And I'll show you why. So here are five fantastic reasons. And if, if you're a, a, a Christian here tonight and you want to identify ways that you can converse with people about the truth of Christianity, 
these are going to be helpful. If you're here and you're like, hey, I've been, I just came because I heard they have a cool pool table or something, I don't know. And I want you to, to chew on these, okay? Sometimes people use arguments for Christianity like sledgehammers or something and try to pound you over the head with them. But I want you to think of these more like pebbles, okay? Anybody ever gone for a hike? Any hikers in here? Or a walk, maybe? Okay. Have you ever gotten a small pebble in your shoe? And now it, it's, yeah, it's horrible. And it's not as though it's like totally debilitating and your leg is broken. It's just one of the most annoying things on the planet that eventually you're like, okay, stop. And get down, get your shoe off or your boot off. And you got to get this. And it comes out and it's like this microscopic piece of sand. And you're like, really? Wow, I'm weak. But you get rid of it and you have to deal with it. And so similar to that, I want these five reasons to behave kind of like pebbles. When I'm talking to people that are non-believers or that have a real hard time with this idea that, okay, I'm good with all the moral stuff Jesus taught, but this idea that he's the son of God, I'm not buying it. Miracles, I don't see those happening, so I'm not sure I can get on board. So then I share these with them. And these act like little pebbles. And I kind of throw them in their shoe. I don't really throw pebbles in their shoes. But I want them to be mental pebbles that they walk away going, ah, that's really annoying. I got to deal with this at some point. Okay? The first one is the empty tomb. Now, the reason why this is a pebble is because Christianity is unique in that it's the only religion that can test its reliability or its truthfulness on a, on a public historical event. And so what we have in this event is a guy named Jesus of Nazareth lived. We understand kind of the time period in which he lived because time is actually measured by his birth. Pretty interesting. And he comes on the scene. He lives to about age 33 from an obscure town. And then he causes a ruckus in Jerusalem. And he causes such a ruckus that the Roman authorities have to deal with this to kind of keep the peace. And so they convict him and hand him over to be crucified. He's tortured, he's crucified, he's put on a cross, and then he's taken down. And up till now, the story's not too unique. A lot of people in that time period were crucified. It is a pretty common way of dealing with criminals. But then what happens after this is what's unique. He's taken down, and he's put in a tomb, and a large boulder that took several people to roll was placed in front of that tomb. It was then sealed by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who sealed it so that it was officially a closed case of the Roman government. There were guards placed to guard it because there were rumors or fears that the body might be stolen because of the loyalty of his followers. So they placed centurions, who are very accomplished Roman guards. They place him there and... All of a sudden, three days later, the tomb doorway is opened. And there's no boulder there guarding it, and the body's gone. That's where the story becomes very different. And the, the reason why we know that it becomes very different is because everybody, the Romans, the Jews, the Christians, all other people involved at that time period all agree 
that the tomb was empty. No one disputes that. But they have different opinions as to why it was empty. So let's take a look at what we know here. Jesus was publicly executed. Okay? He was placed in a tomb by a guy in a tomb that was owned by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. What we learn about Joseph is that he's a very wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this Jewish ruling council. So in Jerusalem, the capital of Judaism, we have this wealthy ruler or authority within Judaism. So he's somewhat of a celebrity in the place. So a well-known guy gives up his tomb and they place Jesus' body in there. Three days later, some women claim that the tomb is empty. So it's very significant that this whole Christianity thing hinges on an empty tomb and a missing body. Why? Well, because these are verifiable things. I think I put up their fancy words like publicly verifiable or empirically falsifiable. Big fancy words. You don't have to remember them. All you have to know is that it's really easy to prove false. And you can test it by physical, empirical evidence. That's dangerous. If you're going to start a new religion, my advice to you is to choose the foundation of your religion to be something that can't be tested, can't be proven wrong, so that it's your claim against other people's claim. What we have here is the claim and the, the very foundation of the Christian faith is a public event that was witnessed by many people, recorded historically, and could be proven wrong if it in fact did not happen. Okay? So, the empty tomb becomes a very real pebble. And there's a lot of theories as to why it was empty. I don't really have time to go into it, but if sometime you want to hang out, we can talk about all the different theories. Some people say it was stolen either by the Jews, the Romans, uh, grave robbers, or the disciples. But when you start to think about what's the motive of a thief, that each, in each of those cases, the motives don't stand up to what the risk was. The benefit versus risk didn't stack up. Well, some people claim that uh, he faked his death. And when you look at the story and actually go back and read what he endured, the reality of him being able to remove the boulder and somehow evade Roman centurions, run a couple miles down the road and appear in, the, in this place called the upper room or a room where all of his followers were gathered to kind of figure out what they were going to do next. And he somehow appears and gives them this high degree of confidence that he's now a conquering hero when he actually just kind of survived, that's pretty unrealistic. And so you start to look at these other theories, and, and you emerge and you go, man, these are all huge leaps that have no evidence behind them. And resurrection becomes really your best option. Next one. These are the appearances. If you go to the next slide, you'll see this uh, statement by Paul. This is also in that letter to the Corinthians where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is also known as Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 500 people, brothers, men, so there's probably even more than that there, if you count the women. Back then, they didn't count the women, so hey, it's, we've improved, right? Most of, them, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is dangerous for Paul, who's writing, to say this. Why is it dangerous, what he's saying? That Jesus appeared after his death, he appeared alive, not just a couple of few in private, but he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Why is that dangerous? If he's trying to convince them of the reality of Christianity, why is that dangerous? It's empirically falsifiable. Thanks for using my big fancy words. Yeah, it's really easy to prove wrong. It's very easy to disprove what Paul is saying here if it in fact didn't happen. Because you have a lot of eyewitnesses, right? You have a lot of people that go, hey, Paul, when did that happen? Been living in Jerusalem for 30 years. I don't remember that. You could easily ask around, but he's making this claim that Jesus was very visible and very public in his appearances. Well, some people try to explain away the appearance. And they go, well, they were just hallucinating. More than 500 people at one time, a mass hallucination, all hallucinating the same thing. What takes more faith? Seriously. All right, so we have this appearance thing. And I, again, I just don't think there's any other explanation. This one is very compelling. Jesus' disciples became bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection, but six weeks before that, they were doubtful, despairing, and they had completely disbanded, and they did not want to be around. Why? Jesus gets arrested. What happens to his followers? They spread out. Why are they spreading out? Yeah. Yeah, they're afraid. They're like, did you see what happened to Jesus? Mm-mm, I'm out of here. They take off for fear that the same kind, that, that arrest, torture, whatever's happening to him may also happen to them. So they disband. Even Peter, who I've mentioned before, he's, he's kind of in this courtyard outside of where Jesus is being interrogated and tortured. And they're like, hey, weren't you uh, with Jesus? Aren't you one of his, his guys? And he's like, nah, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh no, seriously. You're, you you kind of have the same accent. Are you sure you're, you're not with him? No, no, no. Are you? Come on, I mean, I think I saw you with him last week. Nope, not me. Denies him three times. He does not want to be associated with Jesus at this point. And so then, what has to happen in the life of somebody that six weeks later, you're not only willing to be associated with them, you're willing to die for this. And you're out there going, yeah, he rose from the dead. He's now God. He's more superior than Caesar. I mean, that's dangerous stuff. That's asking for it. But six weeks before that, they were not even remotely willing to do that. So third pebble. Next one. Oh, well, this is just a list of how these guys died. These are guys that six weeks prior were afraid for their lives to even be associated with him because of fear of arrest. This is what these guys end up facing because they want to associate with him. I'm not going to go through the list. I think it's self-explanatory. So my question to you is this. Stay with me. Stay with me. Give me just like two more minutes. What has to happen in the life of somebody that you go from only caring about your self-preservation 
to all of a sudden you don't care about that and you just want people to know that Jesus is Lord. And it's not just one person, it's this whole group of people. Something significant has to happen, right? Next one, you have the birth and growth of the church. I want you to look at this map and tell me if you see any similarities. Ah, there it is. Now, there's where Jesus was killed and buried. And then there was a, a location where people began claiming that he rose from the dead, resulting in the, the beginning of the church. Any similarities here? Same place. Same place. Thank you. Corby, can you explain why that's dangerous? Is it Corby? Why, if you're going to start a new religious movement based on something very public, witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people, what might you do? Okay, I'll help you out. I'm going to help Corby out. Because we're, we're pressed for time. We're pressed for time. You would probably go somewhere else where people had no idea what took place if you were going to start something that, didn't, that wasn't true. If it was false. Maybe go to Egypt or somewhere like Nineveh or something. But to do it right there within days of the events taking place, that's risky if it didn't happen. However, if it did happen, well now we're on to something, right? And so the very fact that the church started where this miracle is proclaimed to have happened, where it's empirically falsifiable. Who's my guy over here that said that phrase? No, it wasn't you. It was a guy that's getting like a hand tattoo. What's your name? Lucas. So Lucas, he pointed out empirically falsifiable. Are you with me on this one too? No, you're getting a hand tattoo. That's okay. All right, next one. Let's keep going. I just have like, Nate's about to pull me off the stage. I got to hurry. Number five, the conversion of Saul. So Saul was this guy who was the number one enemy of the church. He worked, or he was a Jewish Pharisee, and he was given complete authority and power to do whatever he wanted to anybody who claimed to be a Christian. He could torture them, he could interrogate them, he could do whatever he wanted legally to stop them and to get rid of them. And all of a sudden, you have a guy who's doing that. He's at the top of his game, and he switches teams. It would be like uh, Jerry Jones. Any Cowboys fans in here? Okay. Jerry Jones. What if you saw Jerry Jones go and do a, a press conference tomorrow, and he's wearing a Redskins hat, Redskins jersey, and he's just like, we're going to change the colors uh, the Cowboys, and I'm actually a Redskins fan. I'm selling the Cowboys. Would you be like, what in the world? Yeah. That does, it wouldn't compute. You'd be like, I, I don't understand. I need an explanation. Maybe he has food poisoning. Maybe something went on here. Okay? Maybe it's some bad chili last night. Right? You would want some explanation. Well, this is essentially what happened. Paul was the greatest enemy of Christianity, and over the course of a few days... He claims to have encountered the risen Jesus Christ and he completely different guy. Starts proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ and all of a sudden he's the one that's suffering and eventually will go on. People will throw rocks at him until they think he's dead. They'll drag him out of the city. He'll lie there and then he'll finally come back uh, from being passed out or whatever. Stand up, go to the next city, do the same thing again. What happens in a guy's life that's willing to do that? Something significant. Next slide. At the bottom of this slide, you'll see, uh, keep going, go. 
Next one. Explanatory power. Lucas, fancy word. You're probably going to write that down. Okay, explanatory power. What you have to do is when you look at all five of these pebble, little pebbles or ideas or fantastic reasons, you want to ask yourself, what explanation can, can explain these? Because these are significant. Maybe you can explain away one by itself, but all of these together, what can possibly have the power to explain those sufficiently? And the only explanation for all of the things that transpired here is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if that happened, then that changes everything. And I mean everything. Okay? Because I want to I leave you with this. I talked to a guy yesterday. He was in my office. Uh, his name is Trevor. He's 20 years old. Throughout his whole life, he was an atheist. That means he, he believed that God did not exist. He thought God was a fairy tale. And he lived his life for himself, and he pursued anything that he wanted to because he didn't think it mattered. Because this is all there is. He, after he graduates high school, he moves away and then eventually comes back. He was a big partier in high school. And he comes back and he, he sees a buddy of his that he had partied with a ton when he was in high school. Easy now with the phone. Oh boy. So he sees this guy named Brody who he had partied with a bunch. And he notices this, this guy is really different. And he starts to sit down. He's asking him, what, what happened? You used to be, like, we used to party. What happened with you? And this friend of his said, I, I need to tell you something. And he sits down and explains to Trevor, I met Jesus. And he starts to walk him through the reality of that. And so Trevor is first drawn because there's this changed life in the life of his old friend Brody. And now, just a year and a half later, Trevor has encountered the living God. And I asked him, I said, Trevor, why do you believe that Jesus is God? And he says, well, I believe that G I have a sin problem and I have... There's no way to fix that. I can't, I can't fix it by myself. And that Jesus is the only way to do that because he actually rose from the dead. And anybody who rises from the dead is worthy of my worship. And then I give my life to him. And I said, okay. So the changed life first drew you to the reality that there's something here, but then you met Jesus and were convinced that he rose from the dead. And now that's changed your life. The reality is everyone who encounters the risen Christ in the New Testament, the greatest proof for the reality of Jesus is the transformed life. That's the greatest evidence that he is in fact who he says he was. But you only get there if you're convinced that he actually rose from the dead. And I will, I will argue that that is the most reasonable explanation and what I find to be the most convincing thing in the history of man. That Jesus, in fact, is God. There's no other explanation because he did rise from the dead. All right, I want to